can go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And we're going to continue in our series tonight that we've entitled Made for More, Finding Meaning Beyond the Madness. And that is really, I think, a, a, a thought that captures the, the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 4, uh, the 16 verses here. And uh, let me just begin by sharing with you what someone once said that I think is very insightful as an observation of people in general. This anonymous person said, quote, people work long and hard hours at jobs they hate to earn money to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't like. People work long, hard hours at jobs they hate to earn money to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't like. And that statement would be funny if it weren't so true. But I think that is an accurate summary of a lot of people's lives. And there's a reason that life is frequently referred to as a rat race. And that's the title of tonight's message, Surviving the Rat Race. Um, a rat race is an endless, self-defeating or pointless pursuit. Uh, it conjures up in our minds the image of, of, a, of a lab rat trying to uh, escape while scurrying around a maze or uh, just relentlessly running uh, in this wheel, getting nowhere. And I think this is an accurate description of many people in our world who see life as a seemingly endless pursuit with little reward or purpose. And the term rat race has become commonplace in our society, and it conveys the idea that life is a hectic, frustrating, exhausting, unrelenting, competitive, monotonous routine. And uh, too many of us spend our lives under this intense pressure and stress, commuting back and forth to work, working long hours, trying to keep up with the Joneses, right, with little or no time left for our family, our friends, or even our own leisure or pleasure. And while we might be doing more and making more, we seem to be enjoying life less. And in this chapter of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon described the concept of the rat race in incredibly relevant terms. And like so many of us, Solomon I think grew up thinking that if you work hard enough, if you compete aggressively enough, you're going to make it to the top of your class or you're at the top of your profession, and there you're going to find contentment and fulfillment and relaxation and everything you ever wanted in life, you're going to find it at the top. But what he discovered and what he wants us, wants us to discover is that by looking at Real people in real life situations, those at the top, those that have achieved that goal that they've pursued in life, they're not happy, they're not relaxed, they're not carefree, they're not fulfilled, they're not content, but it's just the opposite. They're stressed out, they're dissatisfied, and on top of all that, they're lonely. We've all heard the expression, right? It's lonely at the top. And for those still clawing their way to the top, it's lonely. For the military commander, the political leader, the corporate executive, the ambitious pastor, you fill in the blank, right? We're all in some way, shape, or form wanting to get to the top of whatever it is that we do in life, right? Whatever it is. Maybe even it's... Even if it, you're, you're a homeschool mom, for example, right? You're, you're trying to achieve something. You're trying to get to the top of something. And, 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 and what is that going to look like? Well, I appreciated what Chuck Swindoll said about this chapter. He said this in his little commentary, a little study guide on, on Ecclesiastes chapter 4. He said, what Solomon says here should be required reading at the finest business schools in the country. His statements ought to be printed in every professional journal subscribed to by the most successful individuals of our day. All college students 
Hint, hint, college students, you're with me tonight, right? This book's for you, right? All college students should have these verses inscribed on their diplomas. Every entrepreneur and every climber of the corporate ladder is enticed by counsel that promises a dream but delivers a nightmare. And uh, if you remember from last week in chapter 3, while some people might view their lives as nothing short of a nightmare because of all the things that have happened in their lives or what they're dealing with in their lives, we, we learn that God truly has a wonderful plan for each of our lives, right? Which includes both good stuff and bad stuff. Blessings and burdens, ups and downs, hills and valleys, the pleasant things of life, the painful things of life. There's a time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to root, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, and so on and so on and so on. That's life. That's life. And none of us can control or change God's predetermined plan for our lives, but we can make the most of it no matter how his plan unfolds, because we know that he will make all things beautiful in his time. Love that verse. This is uh, verse 11 uh, of chapter 3. He has made everything appropriate or beautiful in its time. Right? Uh, Don't miss the connection there. There's a time to give birth. There's a time to die. There's a time to plant. There's a time to uproot. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance, there's a time to weep, there's a time to laugh. He makes all things beautiful in its time, right? God's timing is perfect, in other words. And so while God's timing is perfect, life's not perfect. And we talked about this last week. Life's not perfect, so get over it and make the best of it, right? That's just hard for me to even say, let alone do, because I am a perfectionist. And I want everything to be perfect. And it's so hard for me to get, come to grips with, hey, get over it, Ken. Life's not perfect. So make the most of it. Make the best of it. And enjoy it. Don't walk around bummed out that everything didn't work out perfectly or turn out perfect. Everything's not perfect in your life, right? You could spend your whole life you know, walking around with a cloud over your head going, oh, woe is me, right? Having a pity party because everything's not perfect. Everything didn't turn out exactly the way you wanted it. And you can have a miserable life, or you can choose to say, you know what, this is God's plan for my life, and I'm just going to enjoy it. I'm going to make the most of it. And that's liberating, isn't it? And so life is a gift from God that He wants us to enjoy. We learned that in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. I know there is nothing better from them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. And so life is a gift from God that he wants us to enjoy. That's one of the main themes of of the book of Ecclesiastes. Over and over and over again, he talks about enjoy life. Life's a gift from God. Enjoy it. And the key to enjoying life is to live in awe of the one who created us and who controls every detail of our lives. We learned that in chapter 3, verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should what? Remember? Fear Him. Not like, oh, fear Him. Like cringe, right? No, fear Him. Live in awe of Him. Honor Him. Revere Him. Worship Him. Bow the knee to Him. Live your life for Him. That's the key to enjoying life. And as we mentioned last week, Solomon anticipated somebody out there objecting to this whole concept about, hey, listen, God has this predetermined plan for your life. You can't control, you can't change, but you need to enjoy it. And uh, he says, yeah, how are you supposed to enjoy life, right, when there's all these problems and these injustices and these inequities and these paradoxes and, and these frustrations and these things that drive us up the wall? And so it, these things seem to contradict this idea that God has a wonderful plan for our lives, right? And he says in verse 16 uh, of chapter 3, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. In other words, injustice flourishes in the very place justice should be found, in the courthouses, right? 
And so he ended really that chapter with, with saying, yeah, time out, Solomon. I, I, I get what you're saying, but time out. This, what about the injustice in the world? Doesn't that seem to, to contradict what you're saying about life? God has a wonderful plan for our lives, and he, and, and he makes all things beautiful in his time. Well, in chapter 4 here, he, he goes on to voice more objections that seem to, to prove that life on earth isn't really that wonderful after all. That was the title of last week's sermon, right? Is, 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 it, really a, is it really a wonderful life, right? Is it really a wonderful life? Well, he, he's going to question that tonight. Um, and, and this is Solomon again observing life, testing life, examining life, and everywhere he turned, he saw problems in life. He saw difficulties in life. He saw inequities in life. He saw injustices in life that drove him crazy. You would think he would, he would, he, he thought he would go insane. It's just madness. And it made life seem to him meaningless and it kept him from truly enjoying life as a gift from God, and he was admitting that. And there's two words that are repeated several times here in chapter 4. One of them is the word meaningless. Um, this is a word we know is used close to 40 times. It's the vanity, right? All is vanity. We see it in chapter four, or verse 4. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. He says it again in verses 7 and 8. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. In the end of verse 8. He says, this too is vanity and is a grievous task. Verse 16, he says, for this too is vanity and striving after the wind. So again, he's, he's showing us, once again, he's kind of back to the, the gloomy side of things, right? Life under the sun is depressing. It's just, it's, it's all vain. It's, it's futile. It's, it's a chasing after the wind. But there's also another word that he uses multiple times in this chapter, and it's the word better. The word better. Notice verse 6. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Um, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. And then verse 13, a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. And so with those words kind of guiding our interpretation of this chapter... I would suggest to you that what we see here in this chapter is four hindrances to enjoying life. You may be here tonight saying, you know, I just have the hardest time really truly enjoying life. Just, just enjoying life. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this message of the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and it sounds really good, but I'm really having a hard time enjoying life. What is it that's hindering you from truly enjoying life as a gift from God? We're going to find out tonight. Because he's going to tell us the four hindrances that oftentimes keep us from enjoying life. Another way to look at this chapter, you could say it this way, that there's a better way to live than the way you're living. Okay? There's a better way to live than you're living right now. The reason why you're not enjoying life is because you're not living, right, the way you should be living. And uh, there's a better way for you to live your life. And if you don't learn this better way... You're never going to truly enjoy life. I'm sure you're familiar with a very popular book, New York Times bestseller, written by a pastor, uh, or at least I, I could maybe say an inspirational speaker. That would be a better term. Uh, it's called Your Best Life Now. You're familiar with that book? Well, I would suggest that Solomon's, you could title this chapter, not Your Best Life Now, but how about A Better Life Now? A Better Life Now. Because if this is your best life, now, you're in trouble, right? Listen, our best life is not now. It's in eternity, amen? But we can have a better life now than what we are living, right? And so I think this is a more modest, if you will, a more manageable, lower expectations. Instead of looking for our best life now, how about just a better life now? How about a life that's well-lived now? I think that's the point. So the only alternative, really, to enjoying your life as a gift from God, as we're going to find out, is, is listen, this is your option. You can either enjoy your life as the Lord has, 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 is unfolding it to you, 
according to his predetermined sovereign plan, right? You can rejoice in that, and you can enjoy that, or you can just be gloomy, self-seeking, lonely, and just spend your life just working yourself into the grave. That's your, that's your other option. And we're going to see that that's a scary option because that's what this chapter reveals. So let's look at these, these four hindrances to enjoying life uh, and how we can make sure that we're living a better way, right? Learning how to live a better way than we are now. We don't want to choose this alternative. So what is, what is the first hindrance? We'll call it oppression, okay? Oppression. That's the first hindrance to enjoying life. Notice verse 1. Solomon says, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. And so here he's returning to that theme of injustice and and oppression and the unfairness of life, and he was grieved here to see the oppression that was carried out by people against their fellow man, and he was frustrated by the fact that no one seemed to do anything about it, and, and, and the, the, those who were oppressed had no one to comfort them, and it seemed like the oppressors were, were the ones that had all the power, and so he, he's, he's just, he's, he's discouraged, he's saddened, he's grieved here as he just observes the oppression Right, and, and I'm sure there's times when you maybe pick up the newspaper or you turn on the, the news or you go on the internet and you look at the news and however you track the news and you, you see what's going on in our world and you see all the oppression, right? We see things like you know, bombings at the, at the Boston Marathon and, 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 and earthquakes in Iran and some crazy guy with a nuclear missile over in Korea, right? We were seeing all this stuff going on and all the oppression and, and the sadness and the, and, and it, I mean, you, it, you could get depressed really easy, couldn't you? If that's what you fixated on, right? If that's, if that's all you ever did was fixate on all the bad things that were going on in the world, all the oppression, all the sick and dying, all the people with AIDS, all the homeless people, all the children who are dying of hunger, all the people, all the nations that don't have water, you know, you could just go on and on, the list goes on. There's a ton of oppression. All the, 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 the oppressive leaders, right? Even those who are persecuting Christians and killing Christians, right? If we fixate on all that oppression, man, we're going to have a pretty gloomy perspective on life. We're not going to enjoy life. In fact, notice what happens when you fixate on this stuff. Verse 2, so I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. And I was, he was like, basically, good for you. If you've already died, good for you. Congratulations. It, it's, it's better for you to be dead than it is for us who are still alive. That's a depressing perspective on life, right? Oh, that we were all dead is basically what Solomon was saying. We're, we're all better off dead. But better off, notice verse 3, it's even worse than that. Not only was he suicidal, if you will, in verse 2, he says, but better off in verse 3 than both of them, the ones who are alive and dead, is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I mean, this is like the lowest you can get. It's like, you know what? It'd be better if you hadn't even existed and you were not even ever exposed to the evil, the evils of the world, Right? Someone wrote it this way, that Solomon thought it was better that they had never had to endure, quote, the ghastly mockery of happiness called life. Like, are you kidding me? You call this happy? With all the evil that's in the world, all the oppression that's in the world, all the injustice in the world, all the crime that's in the world, all the murder, all the disease, all the rape, all the... The, the sex trafficking, you, you fill in the blanks, right? And so here he is saying, you know what? This oppression, man, it's just, it's just, uh, it's just too much for me to handle. I, it'd be better off if, if I never even was exposed to it, that I never even existed. And I was thinking about this after last week's message. And 
I, I think, I mean, if we're honest, we can all admit that, listen, life can be hard on us. Is it, is it not? I mean, life can get hard sometimes. And it may not be stuff that's going on in our lives. It may be stuff that's going on in other people's lives around us. Or it may be stuff that's going on in our country. It could be stuff going on in our world, right? And life can just be hard on us. And we're all susceptible to, to moments of deep despair. That's what was going on in Solomon's. He was in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a funk here. He was in a deep, dark pit. And we, we, we remember we, we were thinking about George Bailey, right, last week. It's a wonderful life. And he thought, hey, it'd be better if I never lived. I'm going to jump off the bridge and kill myself. And we also talked about Rick Warren's son, right, where, where we all at times are susceptible to lose perspective and feel like we would be better off dead than alive. And death seems to provide a welcome escape from all the problems and the cruelties and the evils of this life. The one thing that Solomon didn't mention here is that a person who dies without a relationship with God is doomed to far more severe suffering in eternity than the worst oppression here on earth, right? And we have to understand, don't, don't forget this little statement here, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done, what? Under the sun. This, this is a purely humanistic perspective. It's a purely godless perspective. He's not thinking about God right now. Right? This is life without God. And this is what happens. When, when, when God's not in your life, how else are you going to respond? Life stinks and then you die. That's, that's all you got left without God. And so he's thinking about this from, from a, a godless perspective. And so, listen, if this is you tonight, right, that you've allowed yourself to become overwhelmed by the oppression surrounding you, whether it's in your own home, you might feel oppressed by a relationship in your own home. You might be oppressed by uh, what's going on with your health or uh, what's going on in our society, right? And you're like, you know what? It'd just be better off if I wasn't here. You're never going to enjoy life, right? That's hindering you from enjoying life. There's a second thing that hinders us here, and this is when it starts getting convicting, at least for me, it's competition. Competition. Notice verse 4. He says, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. And that's what I love so much about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's just gut level honest. He doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush. He just says it like it is. And you're like, Solomon, okay, that kind of hurts. I think, uh, I think you, how did you know that? You've been reading my mail, right? And so what he's concluding here is that from his observation of life, right, he was examining life and from real, observing real people in real situations, he said, you know what? I think the drive to succeed that I see in all of us is typically motivated by envy and jealousy and rivalry. That's what's really underneath the surface, driving everything that we do. And the reason we do all that we do is to outdo what other people are doing. That we want to live in a nicer house than they do, drive a nicer car than they do, wear nicer clothes than they do, uh, take home a bigger paycheck than they do, be more well-known, more prestigious than they are. And our lack of happiness makes us think that everyone else is, is better than us, and so we strive for preeminence, Right? To, to one-up them, if you will, thinking that somehow that's going to make us happy. If I'm more popular than that person, if I'm more well-known than that person, if I have a bigger church than that person, okay, now we're getting to meddling, right? Right? Come on. It just, that's how we are. There's this incessant comparing ourselves with others and competing with others. You may have seen the movie The Prestige. It's a fascinating story about two magicians who have this jealous rivalry, right, where they're just viciously determined to outdo one another at any cost. And, and this is what he's talking about. And, and, and so what do you do? What does this look like in life? Okay, how does this flesh itself out in life? This, this, this every labor, every skill which is done is a result of rivalry. 
between a man and his neighbor. What does this look like? It looks like the person who burns the candle at both ends, who loses sleep, right, to get ahead. And um, we know what that's a formula for. That's a formula for exhaustion, right, for depression, for loneliness, for burnout, you name it. And so we need to be very careful. What is it that's motivating our hearts? Listen, if, if there's a competitive spirit in you, and again, I'm not saying all competition is bad, right? There's something to say for a competitive spirit out on the, out on the basketball court, out in the athletic field, uh, even in business, you know, if, you're, if you've got a, you know, there's healthy competition between companies and businesses and things, that's all okay. I'm not saying that, but, but really examine your heart. And listen, if you wake up every morning and it's about just scraping and clawing to get in front of the guy ahead of you or to get, you know, pull some guy off the mountain so you can be on the mountain, right? And it's all about you, right? And you being the best, you, you being the, the most, you being the richest, the fastest, the whatever, right? You're not going to enjoy life. It's going to be miserable. It's going to be in a miserable existence because you're always going to be striving for, with, this, with this selfish ambition, Right? There's an opposite extreme to this, by the way. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. So here's the opposite of the guy with selfish ambition who's driven to achieve. This is the, this is the, the apathetic dropout who, who says, I, I just don't care. You know, I, I'm not, I, I see that, I see this. That he, he realized that's what, hey, this is all just a, you know, a dog-eat-dog world, everybody's just clawing for success and clawing to get in front of the other guy and the next person, and and I I don't want anything to do with that, and so they just become a lazy slug, and they go on welfare, right? That's basically what he's saying. The lazy sluggard, of course, Solomon had a lot to say about this in the book of Proverbs, right? But this folding of the hands, always in Proverbs, is, is associated with the sluggard. Uh, listen to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer, gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. You get the picture of the person just kind of sitting back in their chair, you know, putting their hands over their chest and just, right, just going, going off to sleep. It's the lazy sluggard. Chapter 24, Proverbs 24, 33 says the same thing. But the picture here is of a guy who, who doesn't do any work at all, and so he uses up all his resources until he has nothing left to feed upon except himself. Notice what it says, and consumes his own flesh. Not literally, he's not literally you know, eating his arm, right? But the whole point is he's, right, he's, he's self-destructing is the point. And even this guy who, who's a, basically a leech, right, doesn't lift a finger to do anything for himself or for anyone else. He just feeds off everyone else. He's He's living on what he takes from others. Even that guy is self-tormented and not satisfied. So that's not the path of satisfaction. Listen, if that's you, you're never going to enjoy your life. If you're just an apathetic, lazy, sluggard, dropout of society, right? Milking everyone else for whatever you need, right? Because you're too lazy to do it yourself. You're never going to enjoy life. That's a miserable existence. And then we find a guy in verse 6, seems like Solomon is saying, here, here's the guy you want to be. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. You just get the idea of the guy, that, the, 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 the two-fisted guy, right? He's just, he's just grabbing everything he can get, right? And he's just, let's just, just gra- I mean, he's just this whirlwind, like Tasmanian devil. He's just grabbing everything, right? But he's completely exhausted, right? You know, two fists full of labor. He's constantly working, constantly, always, always on the go. 
trying to achieve, trying to earn, trying to accumulate. He says it's better to just have one hand full of rest, right, than two fists full of labor. So you say, well, I got one hand full of rest. What's in the other hand? Well, obviously he's not saying be a lazy sluggard. So there is the other. You have one fist full of labor, right? So you got one fist full of labor and you got one fist full of rest. In other words, you have a balanced life. Um, I read somewhere that, that um, Vince Lombardi, the coach of the Green Bay Packers, had tattooed on both of his fists. He had work on one fist and play on the other fist. And it was from his dad who said, listen, when you work, you work hard. But when you get off work and you come home, you play hard. And enjoy your family and enjoy your wife, and right? And, and, and again, that's a good example of this, right? What do you want in your fist? You don't want work, work. You don't want play, play. Right? You want work and play. It's a balanced life. So here's a guy, he enjoys the benefits of work. He knows how to work hard, but he doesn't overdo it to the point that it brings him nothing but trouble. And what he's saying here, I think, it's better to have modest earnings and peace and rest than to make a huge amount of money with all the stress and anxiety that comes with it, right? So rather than pursuing more profit, which may end up costing you your peace and your health, lower your expectations and choose a less ambitious path, a less ambitious lifestyle. A couple of verses that come to mind, Psalm 127, 127 verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early to retire late to eat the bread of painful labors for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. In other words, if you think there's something spiritual about staying up super late and waking up super early so you can get quote unquote more done, right? Granted, the Proverbs 31 woman, right? She's an exception to the rule, right? Right? It talks about there is benefit to being that early riser and, and staying up to do your work. But the point is, if you're that person that's thinking, well, I just, wish, I just wish I didn't have to sleep. Right? You ever thought that? that? I just wish I didn't have to sleep. Sleep always gets in my way. I always have to go to bed. I wish I didn't have to sleep. I wish I could just keep working. Well, guess what? God says, I gave you rest for a reason. It's a good thing. And uh, don't wish that you didn't have to sleep. And hey, why don't you just relax and, and, uh, and remember that you can go to sleep and I got this, right? Uh, the universe will be okay without you for a few hours. Mr. Indispensable, right? Mrs. Indispensable. Proverbs 15, Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. You could be sitting in a mansion eating T-bone steaks and be at odds with your wife, right, or your husband, or your kids are all out of control, and you have a miserable home life. Who cares if you're eating T-bone steaks, right? It would be better to be eating a, 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 some, a, a salad if that's all you could afford, right? But there's love. And there's peace, and there's unity, right? Better. Uh, Proverbs 16, 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Hey, it's better to, if you make less, but you're a man of integrity, right, or you're a person of integrity, than if you have great income, but you've got it all unjustly, unfairly. course we're talking about contentment here right first timothy 6 6 always a convicting verse first timothy 6 6 says this but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment so don't have to have it all if, if your whole life is about getting it all you're not going to enjoy life but if you're like hey i'm content i'm just content with what the Lord provides, right? You're going to enjoy life. You're going to be grateful. You know, instead of sitting around going, man, I wish we, I wish we were, you know, eating T-bone steaks, you're saying, I'm, I'm, glad we got, I'm glad we got hot dogs tonight. I'm thankful we got hot dogs, right? 
you're going to enjoy life. Life's going to be good for you. One commentator said this. He said, who can count how many overly ambitious executives have learned the truth of these words without ever reading them here? He says, and who among us does not know a score of wives who look back with longing to the days when their own successful husbands had less responsibilities, less anxieties, and less money, but more time to enjoy what really matters in this life? And so we're talking about this whole idea of competition, that if, if, if life is a big competition to you, <laughs> you're not going to enjoy life. That's hindering you, right, from enjoying life. There's a third thing that hinders you from enjoying life, and that's what we'll call isolation. Isolation. Back to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Isolation, verse 7 He says, then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. And so here Solomon described another kind of guy. We could just call him a workaholic who was working himself into the grave for nothing and no one. He was a loner. He was a hermit. He has apparently no immediate family, no close relatives. Maybe the reason why he doesn't have a family or close relatives is because he spent so much time at the office that he lost his family. And I think so many men and women get so preoccupied with climbing the corporate ladder, even telling themselves that they do so in order to take care of their family, right? But in reality, they're just trying to make a name for themselves, and their family becomes a casualty due to their neglect of the one climbing that ladder, right? Listen, there's nothing wrong with working to have the things that money can buy. Nothing wrong with that, as long as you don't forfeit the things that money can't buy. Right? Nothing wrong with having the things that money can buy as long as you don't forfeit the things that money can't buy. So here's a guy, apparently he, he already had more than he, than he would ever need and yet he continued just to wear himself out day after day denying himself the simple uh, pleasures of life and it never occurred to him to ask the question, why am I doing this? Or who am I doing this for? I've got no one to pass this off to. To, 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 you know, to give as an inheritance to. I, I think the guy that we could think of here who would be a good picture is, is that of Scrooge. We all know Scrooge, right, from the Christmas Carol, um, Dickens' Christmas Carol, the Scrooge. He was just a, he was just a miserable old miser. <clears throat> didn't care, didn't have anybody in his life, right? Didn't care about anybody else but counting his money, Right? Swindoll says this is a perfect picture of someone who had become a slave to the pursuit of success. And then notice what Solomon does here. In verses 9 through 12, he goes on to show what the person who lives like this, this this miserable miser, loner guy, what is this guy missing out on? What does his lifestyle deprive him of? Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. And how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A quarter three strand is not quickly torn apart. All that, all those illustrations, there's basically four illustrations there, all making the point that, that this guy is missing out on one of the greatest joys and blessings that this world or this life has to offer, and that is friendship and companionship. But the guy's too busy, right, to pursue relationships with anyone. And so Solomon here gives the benefits or the blessings of friendship. Basically, friendship and companionship makes us better, okay, 
we, we can enjoy greater growth and productivity. Verse 9, he says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. In other words, it's the power of cooperation, right? You can do more together in less time, right? So, so life is better when you have friends and, and relationships. Number two, life is safer. Life is safer. You can enjoy greater health and safety. Verse 10 says, For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. In other words, if you're out there working and you're climbing the ladder and uh, you happen to stumble and you fall off the ladder and you hit your head, break your leg, right, and there's nobody there holding the ladder for you, you're, you're in a mess of trouble, right? Who are you going to call? So th- there's safety, right? when you're together. And then I think from a spiritual perspective, woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. You stumble and fall into sin, right? And there's no one there to restore you, right? Galatians 6.1, if you see your brother overtaking a fall, you who are spiritual, restore him, right? You don't have anybody in your life. You don't have anybody holding you accountable. You don't have any spiritual connections with anybody, right? You're a goner, spiritually. So you're safer with friends, Thirdly, uh, you're warmer. Life is warmer. Uh, We enjoy greater warmth and energy. Verse 11, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? It's the classic, you know, um, the guy falls into the, through the ice, right? What do you do? You pull him out, take all his clothes off, and you get up close to him, and you get your body heat on their body heat, right? You're saying, guy's like, that's weird. I'd let the guy die, okay, before I did that, right? (laughs) But it's in the movies, all right? They do it, in the, it's always in the movies, right? That's what you do. You take the guy's clothes off, and you take your clothes off, and you war- warm up to the guy, and, and you save his life, right? There, there's friction there. There's, there's, there's warmth. Again, here's the power of, of stimulation going on. When you have in regular interaction with other people, there's, there's sparks fly. Iron sharp, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, right? And then you're stronger. You're stronger, if you have relationships, you enjoy greater strength and stability. Verse 12, if, if one can overpower him who's alone, two can resist him. So this is the idea that you join forces and you fight together, right? You're, you're much better off. I'd much rather have somebody who's got my back. If, I, if I'm in a battle and I'm, I only can kind of look as far as my peripheral vision can go, right? I would sure love to have a guy behind me that's doing the same thing. I got his back, he's got my back, right? But if you're the loner miser guy that could care less about relationships, you're not going to have anybody backing you. You're not going to have a brother's keeper, a sister's keeper in your life. And then notice he just says this, a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Obviously, the, the picture is, you know, you could have a rope that has one strand, right? And that's pretty strong. You could have a rope with two strands. That's pretty strong. But how about a rope with three strands that's intertwined, Right? We're talking like go climb a mountain with that, hang off a cliff, go rappelling with that rope, right? Because that's not going to break real easy. So the idea is, you know, hey, notice he goes from one, right, this single loner miser guy to two. Two are better than one, right? Now, what's even better than two? Three. So don't be content if you just got one close friend. How about two close friends, Right? The three amigos, the three musketeers, whatever you, right? Three, there's, there's strength in numbers. So, man, don't be, don't be content with just one, one close confidant. Find two close confidants. There's safety in numbers. There's strength in numbers. And so he's just emphasizing here the necessity of our lives being intertwined with the lives of others. And listen, if you are living in isolation, you're not going to enjoy life. That's hindering you from enjoying life. You need to be in relationship. You need, to, you need to be building friendships with people. You need to be making yourself accountable to people, right? Because guess what? You try to live this life alone, it's going to beat you up and leave you by the side of the road, right? And that's why you need a friend. When you do, when life does get you down and you start thinking crazy thoughts like, you know what? It, it might be better that I was dead. You got somebody there to help talk some sense into you, Right? And to say, hey, time out. Let's, let's, look at all the, let's look at all the good things in your life. Let's see what God's doing in your life, right? Instead of focusing on all the bad things in your life, right? You need somebody there. So all that to say, listen, you're not going to enjoy life if you're just kind of trying to make it on your own. Life's too hard to make it on your own. 
So that's why you need relationships. And then the last thing here we could say that, that could hinder you from enjoying your life is, I didn't know what to call this. I was going to call it revolution. I, I landed on alternation. Okay, alternation. You're saying, what's that mean? Alternation. Well, let me, let's look, and I think it'll make sense. Verses 13 through 16. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who can no longer knows how to receive instruction. So Solomon is uh, setting up this, this, this concept here. You've got a poor yet wise young man, lad. It's better to have him as your king than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. In other words, he's an old crotchety guy. He, he doesn't see his own limitations, right? And, and he, don't, he won't listen to anybody, right? Um, he refuses to take counsel from him. You've got to get rid of that guy. Okay, it's better to get a young guy. Uh, to do that. Notice verse 14, for he has come out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. And so uh, when I read that, I thought of Nelson Mandela. I don't know if you guys know the story. When we went to South Africa several years ago, we, we got in the know about South Africa and the whole apartheid thing and Nelson Mandela and where did he come in? And, you know, he was a, he was a political prisoner. He was put in prison because he was a revolutionary, right? And he ended up coming out of prison and becoming the president. <laughs> it took over the regime that put him in prison. And that's kind of the picture here is that, hey, here's a guy that got thrown into prison um, and he came out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. And that was Nelson Mandela. He was kind of the poor black community that was being oppressed and persecuted, Right? by the whites, and um, I just think it's interesting, this guy coming out of exile to replace the regime, but then notice what happens. I've seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. Okay, so in other words, everybody took their, you know, their confidence off that old guy, put it on the young guy, right? Notice verse 16, though, there is no end to all the people, to all who are before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after the wind. In other words, there's going to come a day when people aren't going to be happy with the young guy who took the old guy's place that they weren't happy with. <laughs> there's this constantly alternation, right? The, the leadership is constantly alternating, and, 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 and it, the, the people are fickle. And so Solomon is just pointing out the transitory nature of fame and prestige. And so don't make popularity your goal because it's fleeting. It's a fluctuating thing. It's always alternating. It's always changing. So popularity is precarious. It's unpredictable. And if you're all about, I want to be popular, right? Well, guess what? You're not gonna, that's going to hinder you from enjoying life because you might be popular one day and unpopular the next so if your life revolves around your popularity and what people think of you, right, your life's going to be a roller coaster. One day you'll be up, the next day you'll be down because people are fickle. And you could go from a hero to a zero overnight, right? And so don't live your life for the prestige, for the fame, the popularity, the acclaim of others to find your satisfaction because it's, 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 a, it's an insecure foundation on which to build lasting happiness. And so anyone seeking satisfaction by, by popularity is chasing the wind. He says, this too is vanity and a striving after the wind. So just know that people's opinions are constantly changing. They're constantly alternating. And so you can't live your life based on those things. Or you're going to be a miserable person. Because your life will really depend on the opinion of others. And that's no way to enjoy life, right? You need to rise above what people think of you, right? And make sure you, that you're just pleasing to the Lord. So here's some hindrances to enjoying life. Oppression, competition, isolation, and alternation. And so what are some of the lessons we can take away? I think we need to keep life in balance, right? Work and play, two fists right? Um, we shouldn't compete with others or compare ourselves to others. 
We should make time for friends, cultivate relationships with the people that God has placed in your life, whether it's your spouse, your children, your brothers, your sisters, your church family, right? Be investing time in relationship. Don't be too busy to get together. Hey, hey, can you get together? I'm too busy. I got too much to do. Listen, you're not going to enjoy life, right? How about this one? Learn how to slow down and relax in life and enjoy yourself along the way. Just so you know, I know I'm going to get it when I get home tonight. Because Kelly's back there saying, wow, Solomon described you tonight. Because we have these conversations that I'm not this guy and I need to be this guy. And, uh, I, I, and, and, and why would I wonder why sometimes I don't feel like I'm enjoying life as much as I should? Why, I lack joy. I lack peace. I lack rest. And it was Jesus who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. For my yoke is easy, right? My burden is light. And so, ultimately the only place you're going to find this rest, right, and, and this enjoyment in life is in Christ. It's not in, oh, I just got to make these changes in my life and then everything's going to work. No, you need to come to Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you're in Christ, then you need to abide in Christ and come to Christ on a daily basis and say, Lord, Christ, apart from you, I can do nothing, right? And if I'm going to enjoy this life, you're the one who's going to have to help me enjoy it today because I, I know left up to me, I'm going to get on that I'm going to get on that treadmill again and I'm just going to get out there in that rat race, right? And I'm going to be striving and I'm going to be pushing and shoving and clawing and scraping and I'm just going to be, right? I'm going to lose perspective. So Lord, would you help me stay focused, right? On Christ today so that I can not just survive the rat race, but get out of the rat race altogether. Um, and hopefully be used by the Lord to rescue others out of the rat race. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for how practical this book is becoming in my life, and I trust in the lives of these folks who are coming here faithfully on Wednesday nights, and I pray you just accomplish your work in us. Thank you that your word never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it forth, and I know that uh, everyone here is at a different place in their lives. Um, some people weren't probably very convicted by tonight's message because by your grace, you've helped them to learn these lessons in their lives and that they are living a well-balanced life and they are uh, you know, content with what they have and they're not fighting and competing and striving and comparing and, and they are pursuing relationships and they are relaxed in life and they just have a proper perspective, Lord. But I'm sure there's others who this was very convicting to as it has been for me today thinking through it and, and preparing this message tonight is very convicting. And I pray that you would help me and help those of us who need to change in these areas uh, to, to, to do that, Lord. And we know that we only can change through Christ who, who's, who's in us, Lord. And so I just ask that you would um, help us to um, get out of the rat race, Lord, and, and, and uh, rescue others from it as well. In Jesus' name, amen.